0: At MasterCard, we believe that women-owned small businesses are uniquely inspiring. They're pillars of the community and have a measurable impact on the people within them. It's their secret sauce. We are deeply committed to helping address the daily challenges of all Canadian small businesses by putting our technology, cybersecurity solutions, digital resources, and partnerships to work for you every day. Discover them today at mastercard.ca forward slash small business. MasterCard. Visit us at scotiabank.com slash small business.
1: Welcome to the Startup Canada Podcast, where we talk to Canada's most innovative and entrepreneurial leaders and change makers. I'm your host, Rick Spence, and as a business journalist, editor, and entrepreneur, I've learned what makes Canadian startups special, successful, and scalable. Join me every Tuesday to hear news stories of Canadian entrepreneurs and learn about the moments that mattered most on their journeys. The Startup Canada podcast is a production of Startup Canada. Don't forget to subscribe to the show wherever you listen to your podcasts. Entrepreneurs from coast to coast to coast, welcome to the Startup Canada podcast. All entrepreneurs work to create change in their markets. Debbie Owusu Achia is a Ghanaian-Canadian changemaker, a cisgender queer woman who is dedicated to the liberation of all her communities. She is currently Executive Director of the Canadian Centre for Gender and Sexual Diversity based in Ottawa. Debbie has deep roots in program and project management, gender-based analysis, feminist foreign policy, and international affairs. She completed her graduate studies in international affairs specializing in international development policy at the Norman Patterson School of International Affairs at Carleton University. She's worked at Global Affairs Canada as a policy analyst responsible for strategic advice on child protection, gender equality and broader sexual and gender based violence issues with a particular focus on adolescent girls and the girl child. Prior to CCGSD, she was Campaign and Outreach Officer at Oxfam Canada, responsible for developing public engagement strategies to advance gender justice. She's also been a board member and chair of several organizations, including the Platform and Harmony House Women's Shelter. Debbie is currently co-chair of Dignity Network Canada's Advocacy and Government Relations Working Group. She's also involved in assisting coordination globally around opposition to the anti lgbtiq bill in the Ghanaian parliament. Debbie, all I can say is welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. We're delighted to have you here. Um, The work you're doing is so important and we're really interested in in change-making and how we make stuff happen. So I'm looking forward to diving into this with you. But first of all, what do you hope that our listeners will learn or keep in mind through this episode?
0: I hope that the listeners can learn that change can look like many different things based on what you're able to contribute to. Uh, it can look small. It can be big. The, the big message is that you can contribute to, ca- to change in so many different ways. Uh, that feel good to you. So I really hope that folks can kind of get that through my example and get motivated to contribute to change in the way that they can.
1: Fabulous. Thank you. Can you tell us a little bit more about your background? We've learned about all the things you know and all the things you've done, but how did you get on this path towards international affairs and particularly the the, 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 the concern for gender and sexual diversity? Yeah, it's a great question. So.
0: I always like to to contextualize it with my upbringing because, you know, how I grew up really informed my view of the world and how I experienced the world, especially growing up here in Canada. So I was born and raised in the, the greater Toronto area, and I was fortunate enough to grow up in a working class immigrant community in Brampton, Ontario and i grew up with two parents who worked in factories and very early on in my childhood i got to reap the benefits of dropping off my mom to kind of to work especially during like union strikes and that's when i kind of learned the importance of like collective power unions the labor movement like it was very much so part of my upbringing Mm -hmm. Uh, but tied to that as well was um, my experience as a young Black girl in a Canadian society trying to figure out my own identity um, and figuring out, um, you know, how I experienced the world when I was getting so many different messages about who I was supposed to be. You know, I didn't look like a nine-year-old girl. I looked like a 15-year-old girl, and people treated me that way. and It was very confusing to experience that on top of being in a relatively kind of social conservative Guinean household, Um, but I was a very curious kid and I pushed back and challenged power in many ways, uh, especially to my parents disliking. (laughs) Um, And because of that, I have always carried a voice of wanting to speak for the people or advocating for the people who um, didn't really have a voice. So whether it was in school, where it was challenging inequities that I saw definitely challenging inequities in my household i'm the only daughter and my mom treated me differently as a result of that and i was not afraid to point that how out brothers how many brothers, I have how many brothers
1: did you have? Do you
0: have i have two brothers i have an older one and a younger one so i was right smack ah, in the so middle you get
1: no attention at all it,
0: oh all of it but in the way that i didn't want <laughs> and so basically i kind of carried that curiosity and that uh speaking truth to power not only through elementary school, definitely through high school. And it really motivated me to wanna do an undergrad degree in women and gender studies, but in particular, moving to Ottawa to, to do that. I knew I wanted to impact policy, whether it be public policy or international policy. And I knew really early on, moving to Ottawa was the best way to do that. And so moved here, found activists, found organizations that really spoke to the issues that mattered to me. Uh, and got involved really early on, on top of playing varsity rugby. And that is what brought me here. That was like kind of just like the foundation of, of getting me to where I am right now. It's uh, the passion that I had as a kid that never went away.
1: Wow. I'm going to ask a question. There's obviously an assumption attached to this question, and, and feel free to correct my assumption if it's wrong, but where did you find the confidence as the – the only girl among two brothers, or as just a student in public school or high school, where did you find the confidence to speak truth to power?
0: That's a really good question. And sometimes I I always ask myself in retrospect, I'm like, where did I get this (laughs) from? And I don't know. But I also think that we're, you know, we learn from what's around us, right? And I happen to come from a matrilineal tribe or ethnic group. So that tribe is the Akan in, in, in Ghana, West Africa, and we're matrilineal. So that means that property, chieftaincies and inheritance pass through the women. And so I grew up around women who took up space, who who were powerhouses, who were matriarchs. It's by virtue who we are. And so I find it a little funny how much uh, this frustrated my mom. But I'm like mom you you set the foundation for me to be the powerhouse woman I am today and now she now she's like okay but you know at 10 years old she wasn't too happy about it but it was definitely I think a reflective of what I saw around me from my cultural community um, and how integral it is to just who we are as a people and that feminist spirit very early on just I kept it with me I don't know maybe it's just a calling I think. <laughs>
1: I, I think that's, uh, that's a great story. Thank you so much. Um, what's a typical day like for you at the Center for Gender and Sexual Diversity?
0: Great question. So we are a remote team. So a typical day usually involves me going into my kitchen office, uh, not too far from the coffee, um, but it does uh, involve, at least for me, uh, opening um, my email to many emails from either my management team, staff, board of directors, uh, or stakeholders who are engaging in our work. Uh, but when I think about the work of my staff team who are at the front and center of what we do, it involves uh, twofold. Uh, for those who are delivering projects, it is them looking at their project plans to figure out where are we are at with delivering. Uh, projects that are reaching queer and trans youth across the country. And for a team that's facilitating workshops across the country, it's prepping their facilitation guides, their slide decks, and either tuning in virtually or in person to a school classroom across this province or um, if we're fortunate enough, virtually across the country and uh, teaching young people about gender and sexual diversity or about LGBTQ history or comprehensive sex ed, intersectionality. involves those things and for our team on the advocacy side it's you know building resources for young people to uh, mobilize people power around them and to you know teach their own communities about the issues that are impacting lgbtq people Uh, it's exciting work it's not easy but it's fun
1: and we're going to get back to gender and diversity and power in a sec but i gotta ask you as you know you're the boss of your own remote team do you Do you intend to bring people back into an office or do you see remote as the future of of your work with the center
0: so for us we definitely see the pros of moving remotely our team historically prior to me arriving which happened to coincide with the onset of the COVID 19 pandemic uh, we were a team that met in person in an office here in ottawa but that impacted the ways of working so our team was primarily ottawa staff but we had a national mandate and so one of the fortunate uh benefits of things moving virtually as a result of our response to the pandemic was that we were able to expand the way we really operate our national mandates so with a remote team means we could hire staff members from across the country and really reflect the communities that we're really serving and so at this very moment remote is the way to go however we're recognizing the challenges around people going back to in person and how there are the benefits of people being in person and sharing ideas when they're face to face. And so it's that hybrid model while having a remote team that we are really still learning about, uh, but still the pros outweigh the cons and to have staff members who um, are from communities from all over is an added benefit to the work that we
1: do. Thank you. I, I, I've asked a lot of entrepreneurs about that simply because everyone's situation is different, um, but everyone is, you know, struggling to to adapt to uh, to hybrid forms of work now, and, it, and it's really interesting. Any tips on how to hire really good people virtually when they're in another city and you don't have a chance, probably to 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 interview them in person?
0: Good question. So it's investing in the good tools. So anyone who really is learning human resources, like I have had to as a result of this role, you know, the right HR tools will make the hiring process easy because it handles all of the administrative part. It's the administrative part that I think ends up being the biggest barrier to your ability to engage with the talent you're trying to recruit. And so um, having that to be able to track the data, like where are people who are applying coming from? Um, if we know that there's a strategy around maybe hiring a communications person who's francophone from a particular area that that tool will give us that 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 added benefit um, but also for us and I don't know if it'll apply for, ev- for everyone else you know being in the nonprofit sector there are other organizations that we work in partnership with and even just them sharing the job posting with the their own networks uh, and word of mouth has been super beneficial for us. And so I think it's a combination of a great human resources admin tool. We use Bamboo HR um, as well as really thinking strategically around what you need representation wise. Do you need to increase your bilingualism? So you need to think about what that would look like. And then um, word of mouth to promote job postings. Um, We have seen the changes in our staff team with who's applying skill wise and the amount of people who are applying which is indicative of so many things. But what I think it really shows is that people want to work and do this critical work of amplifying LGBTQ rights. um, And they want to be part of our team, which is really exciting.
1: That's very cool, thank you. Getting back to the the actual work that you do, um, CCGSD's mission is for a world without discrimination. Can you take us into this uh, mission a little bit more closely and uh, tell us about the actions and efforts that you're actually engaging in? What are the, you know, tools and 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 uh, and programs you're using to try and fight discrimination and create a better future?
0: Yes, so when it comes to the mission of a world without discrimination for our organization, we see Discrimination as being one of the biggest barriers to people's ability to fully participate in their societies, whether this is from their ability to participate in job access, to education access, to just feeling safe in their communities. Discrimination is that big barrier point, and it absolutely impacts uh, gender and sexually diverse communities in a very specific way. And so for us, uh, that mission is what is at the foundation of everything that we do, and it informs the values in which we do this work. And we have an informal motto internally, and it's uh, activism through education. And we say that because we, we see it twofold, that education is a phenomenal medium for which advocacy and change work can actually happen, where you, teach people about new communities, you challenge their assumptions, you unlearn the things that we often take for granted or have been taught to us that are actually informed by discrimination and oppression. And the flip side is actually taking a look at education as an institution in itself and the benefit of early intervention and teaching about power and unpacking power and doing so that there are the uh, the benefits long-term in the societies that we live in. And so that really is at the foundation and the core of the mission. And when it comes to our work, we do this work through educational programming, both in and outside the classroom. In the classroom, we do, uh, we provide resources as well as curricula that is supplementing the existing curricula, not only in the province of Ontario, but in different uh, provinces and territories across the country, where we fill the gap uh, in centering the experiences of not only to us LGBTQ people, but also talking about other forms of pedagogy that are often absent. you know, talking about uh, intersectionality, really unpacking how power works, really understanding um, the history of this country and the voices that have been systemically erased uh, in order to privilege others. That is what we are teaching through our our workshops. One of the workshops that I'm so proud of is our um, Intersecting Identities workshop that is facilitated through our Intersectionality and Diversity Program. It's an opportunity for folks who are as young as 11 to be able to understand that, They all have identities. Everybody does. Um, Everyone has multiple factors that make up that identity. Um, And that's okay, and that's important, and so do their neighbors. And I'm really proud of that work that's being done, because as someone who had to wait till she was in university to even learn about the term intersectionality, despite living the reality of it, um, as a Black LGBTQ person, and a woman, um, I think that is really critical is that we're giving these tools to young folks who don't have to wait to spend thousands of dollars for a post-secondary education in, in order to understand that.
1: Can you take a second just to explain intersectionality in case there's any of our listeners who aren't yes. familiar with with with, with what that what that implies?
0: Absolutely, and thank you so much for taking the time to ask that question. So the term intersectionality was coined by um critical race scholar and legal scholar Kimberly crenshaw which is a it's a it's a lens and a framework for understanding the ways in which um vulnerability manifests itself through um oppression intersecting and how it might have specific impacts on people based off their identities but on the real crux of intersectionality is that power um exists differently depending on the context and depending on what inter- intersecting identities might be present in a particular context, space, and time. And so it's a framework. And often, I think what people do now with it is they've kind of taken away the com- the complex framework component of it. And people usually um, hear intersectionality, they're like, oh, it's just another word for diversity. And that's not necessarily what it is, it's, it's a tool for understanding how power can manifest and how that power can change depending on the context. Um, And it really looks at how um, oppression is systemic and that our identities based off the oppressions that are existing in that space may inform uh, our vulnerabilities or privileges. And so that is what it is.
1: Thank you very much for that. As a boomer who grew up in a fairly stuffy, uh, high Anglican city of Toronto, um, which you know didn't really want to admit to, to diversity until the until the 1970s. Um, you know, I, my entire life has been spent trying to overcome the blindness of my childhood and 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 to learn concepts like this. And I got to tell you, I never thought that we'd be in a situation now where in some United some of the states in the United States, people are being discouraged, if not forbidden to talk about these concepts mm-hmm. of power and, and, and how systemic racism has actually erased identities and created a permanent structure for keeping people down and opposing equality. So I don't have a question for you on that, but how do you do it? How do you keep going when, when, there's, when yeah. there's so much negativity oh. in the air and so much pushback now?
0: Yeah, that's a great question. And I wanted just to add to what you mentioned before I I answered the question on how do I do it? Because it's a question I ask myself every day. But, you know, I spoke to our mission around a world without discrimination and why we use education to inform our mandate and why that's so important to us is because we know that if we want to challenge those biases and assumptions, like you mentioned, right, that uh, the blinders that our society usually puts on people. Early intervention, and this is, this is evidence-based research that says early intervention is the best way for us to address these challenges uh, and address uh, um, you know systemic oppression and helping people unlearn how these power struggles exist in our society. Um, and we understand that for the benefit long-term. You know who also understands that? the people who don't want those changes to happen. So that's exactly why when we talk about teaching about sexual and gender diversity at an early age or comprehensive sexual um, sexuality education or teaching about um, you know, unpacking white supremacy in society at a young age, that is a threat to certain people who want to maintain those structures. They don't want young people to know that because they know what happens when young people learn that they're more likely to promote diversity in their communities, to want to support marginalized people, um, taking up space and having equitable access to services and programs. And for some people, that's a big threat, especially the people who wanna maintain power, right? And so I think it's important to name that. And and to be honest, that's what we're up against, especially our, our organization. We are up against people who are so fearful of what changing societies for the better um, are because what they think it might mean um, in terms of what they will lose. And that is the, that has been the interesting part of this work is not only dealing with that, and it's is, it is definitely scary now because we are seeing a much more intensified pushback. Um, so it's scary that way, but it also, uh, in, in, in a way, weird way that intensifies uh, the need for the work that we do at the CCGSD, which um, goes back to like the why, you know, why do we do this? We do this work because we know if we don't what's at stake and what's at stake is young LGBTQ people, young black, uh, brown, indigenous, racialized youth, uh, you know, children from working class communities, immigrant communities, not feeling like they belong in society, and we and we know what the consequences um, that places for everybody, um, and so that's what's at stake, and that's what keeps us doing this work, and it, it's what gets me up every day to come to my kitchen office <laughs> and 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 log into to you know uh, my my Gmail account to read emails and lead a team who who's tackling this work, and we're doing this work as members of the LGBTQ community, right? And so um, sometimes it's hard because our communities are under threat, but we are at the at the, the front lines of advocating for the change that's needed for our communities to thrive.
1: Right. So this is my theory of the polarization that's going on. And I'd, I'd love to, to, to hear what you think of it, um, doctor, no. <laughs> um, <laughs> the fact is, is that the world has gotten a lot more just and a lot more equal and a lot broader minded over the past 50 years. And right now, we the the opposition that we're seeing and the intolerance that we're seeing and that clinging to old forms of what people think society ought to be, that's a reaction to all the progress we've made. So when I look at it, when I explain that in that terms to people, then they see, okay, yeah, this is sort of a natural thing. It's 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 a reaction. It's trying to slow us down, but maybe it's not quite the the you know the horrible, um, powerful movement that it seems to be because there are just a few loud voices that are amplifying it all around. And as long as we see that and create our own backlash to the backlash, then we've got a pretty good chance, I think, of riding this out and coming out again with an even more a more tolerant, a more just society. Oh, there I go again. <laughs> Help me out.
0: <laughs> yeah, and I was just going to say, you know, what you mentioned in terms of those changes over the last 50 years, those were hard fought changes. Those came as a result of people who were pushed to the margins saying, Enough is enough. And they have always been saying enough is enough. And I think that's important to name. No oppressed person has sat there and just been like, yeah, we're going to, we're going to take it. There has always been throughout history instances of resistance. What we have really saw over the last 50 years is that, that pushback really driving both legislative and cultural change. But as a, but what we're still facing is, those systems still exist. They haven't fully been eradicated. So those systemic um forms of oppression also evolve over time. And we're seeing that pushback through this recent iteration of of you know rise in anti-LGBTQ protests, um, you know, incel movements, etc. That's just also the evolution that's taking place as culture changes in this push in this backlash. I'll tell you right now, until we completely eradicate all these systems of oppression, in 50 years from now, the pushback is going to look completely different than it does now. We are in the wake of social media. There's different ways that information passes through people, how resources pass, right? And um, again, what it what it means for those who are doing this work, like the CCGSD, the Canadian Centre for Gender and Sexual Diversity, is that we also need to be equally as clever, resourceful, and we need to really think about coalition building when it means um, continuing to fight for a just world and the future that we're all dreaming and envisioning of, of belonging to.
1: Yeah, thank you for that uh, sort of longitudinal <laughs> um, description of how it's been going. It, it, it's the, the same battle that's been going on, and it, uh, we, we may have victories from time to time, but it's, it's never won, and it, uh, and, it, and, and it isn't always secure. I'm wondering what kind of uh, who your allies are, or resources are uh, in, in, in the center. Um, do you work with government, uh, uh, provincial or federal? Are, are they useful? Do you see yourselves with overlapping functions or, or collaboration?
0: Yeah, I would say over the last 18 years of the Canadian Center for Gender and Sexual Diversity's existence, we've benefited from collaborating with various governments to amplify this work. When it comes to our core programming, we've benefited for, I think, for almost 11 years now with the relationship with the Ministry of Education the, the, here in the province of Ontario with funding to be able to deliver our Dare to Stand Out program in classrooms across the province. Um, in addition, we've benefited from uh, funding relationships with the federal government. Um, a prime example would be our programming for, on queer history where we receive funding from two funding areas within the Ministry of Heritage, both their Youth Take Charge programming and Youth Forums Canada programming, where we we're able to bring to us LGBTQ young people and other uh, students and youth together to learn about Canadian history and the stories of resistance and how LGBTQ people have shaped Canadian history Uh, for decades and arguably even centuries when we look at it in the context of two-spirit and indigenous people. Um, In addition, so that's on the programmatic side, in addition, there's the government relations and advocacy piece, which I think is equally as important. Uh, With the establishment of the 2SLGBTQ Secretariat that is housed within the Department of Women and Gender Equality, CCGSD has been um, an active member of the table of national organizations that that have an LGBTQ mandate really speaking to the federal government to drive changes that not only um, improve our ability to deliver our services but are also informing public policy that is going to impact lgbtq people across the country and a prime example of that is the um which is actually almost a year old which is the federal national US lgbtq action plan that presents a strategy for the federal government that is um, a cross-government, interdepartmental approach to um, advancing the rights of LGBTQ people. And so, yeah, we we also work in uh, policy partnership with the federal government, which is really really exciting.
1: And uh, I guess feminist leadership and management is at the root of the work that you do it is. and 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 how you show up. Um, and I understand it's also a pillar of the way that CCGSC is operated. Can you explain what that is and the, the behaviors and values that are part of that?
0: Absolutely. So I'll speak on it uh, starting from like my perspective, from a leadership and management perspective, because I think a lot of people see our outward work. They see the work that we're putting into to classrooms, where the resources we're giving to queer and trans young people, how we're assisting educators. And that is informed, of course, by our value of intersectional feminism. So, you know, that is, that is a feminist perspective that looks at challenging um, power, patriarchy, but also ensuring that marginalized voices that intersect with uh, gender also amplified. From a management and leadership perspective, it means really challenging the ways we're taught how leadership is supposed to look like. And for many of us, and I think still many of us to this day, we are taught to privilege a particular idea of how leadership look like. And it's a very patriarchal, some people might argue, it's a masculinist way of, of leadership where it's very top down. A feminist leadership approach really centers the people of the team. It really focuses on influencing in a way that is collaborative. And for me, from the onset of me joining this organization as executive director, That was absolutely the approach I wanted to take because I knew for this team of young LGBTQ people, that's what they needed. And frankly, for me, who has had the privilege of working at other feminist workplaces like Oxfam Canada, I've reaped the benefits of being led by feminist managers who were collaborative, who made space to to hear how I felt um, and actually listened to, you know, my emotions, and we're very people-centric. That is a feminist leadership approach, and that is ten times more necessary on the internal side of doing this work in a nonprofit sector uh, than it is, or equally than it is in terms of the actual like work that we're doing to serve our communities. You gotta make sure the people who are doing this work that your team is well taken care of, and doing so in a feminist way, I think is is necessary. And I think it's a, an approach that many people could benefit from kind of learning or adopting as part of their leadership toolkit.
1: I'm, I'm, I'm struck by the idea of the lens in including more collaboration um, because I've never met a leader who didn't claim to be collaborative. Wondering if you can um, help me understand a little bit better, you know, if, if if we if if we do have um, more feminine sensibility towards decentralized leadership, how does that look in the workplace? Because the the male part of of, of my genes say no. There's got to be someone in charge. You've got to have um, the warrior king or queen, <laughs> um, you know, overseeing everything. So how does that work in in practice when you say? Essentially, you're saying we we have we we function more collaboratively. It's not strictly a, a a military hierarchy. So, how does that work? Can you give me a couple examples of how that works?
0: Yeah, I can I can I can use my exa- my organization as an example, um, and maybe some of the, the the tips and tricks I've used that have worked. Um, so, when I say collaborative, like yes, collaboration exists everywhere. Uh, but it's a different type of collaboration and in our our organization this was very much so collaboration from an organizational cultural change perspective as in the culture that we were trying to create in this organization kind of moving from what was not the most feminist way of working despite saying that out loud involved taking the time to hear from all all members of the organization, including contractors who were here for like six months to, you know, full time staff members who've been here for two years, three years of really understanding what are the ways in which we want to show up to the work where our values that are progressive, that are rooted in feminist consensus building, that are rooted in care, that are rooted in centering the emotions and the passion of this work and and not throwing that away because how dare you have a day where you want to cry like that that part of the collaboration piece because the culture work um, requires unlearning the things that show up in our society and we still operate in a patriarchal society right and so that collaboration piece required conversation around how does feminist how, does it, how do you build a feminist workplace? What does it look like? What are those? What are the new um, norms that we wanna create? That is very much the collaboration that like I'm speaking to. So thank you for giving me the space to elaborate a bit more. It was around kind of challenging um, the norms and the practices we have in the organization and, and that has been key, um, yeah.
1: Right, um, patriarchy people have a, a saying that says, the buck stops here i.e. I make all the important decisions. How is that different in a feminist workplace?
0: For me, I consult as much as I can to inform the decisions I have the final say on. Um, There are of course times where it's just like an executive decision needs to be made because we need to move on something. But the decisions that I make that have the, um, the most impact on the organization, I draw my decisions based off that that level of consultation and that level of collaboration like asking people what their opinions and sometimes some people are like i have no opinion on this and i'm like that's great <laughs> that's fine and that's totally valid right um and using that to inform my strategy is uh, and and then walking people through that like walking through that decision-making process uh because the boy oh boy is there a lot of mentorship uh when you have a young team right and so yes the buck does stop with me but those decisions that i make need to be done in a way where i am not causing harm depending on what the decision is and part of that is making sure that i am consulting as much as possible um but then also taking the time to explain why certain decisions are made um, so that people understand how we, how we got to that particular point.
1: I think a lot of our listeners will identify with the, this journey you've been going through as well as they, as they try to become more collaborative leaders and understanding that the, the, that no boss has all the answers, unlike the way they used to tell us. Um, is there a time when you got it wrong and learned from that?
0: Yeah, I've, I've, I've definitely had that experience. I'm thinking of, you know, a few I've definitely had that experience, and it's just been—it's um, hard. There's no like resolution. You're just like, what could I have done different, or should I have made the different decision, or should I have maybe not consulted everyone, or should I have consulted more? You def- i have definitely gone through those experiences. And I continue to learn as I apply this kind of leadership methodology to the way that I work.
1: Yeah, I'm just trying to help the guys out here. So, in a feminist <laughs> organization, how would you, how would you acknowledge that to the group that you made a mistake?
0: Oh, how do you acknowledge to the group that you made a mistake? You would actually acknowledge you made a mistake. That is, there's there is probably something very powerful for a leader to say, "Hey, I messed up on this thing." Um, And here's what I'm going to do better. Um, And I think that from even the communication perspective is super important because there are still a lot of leaders who uh, feel shame and being able to admit that they made a mistake. There's an invincibility that's associated with a particular type of leadership we've been taught. And from my perspective, a feminist leader is not afraid to show those weaknesses because there's strength in doing so because it allows and it gives permission to the rest of your team to be able to do the same. Imagine if you didn't do that, right? There'd be folks who'd be, who'd be making decisions and um, not speaking up, and and that could have um, you know adverse effects long-term. To be able to name that out loud and to lead by example is huge and crucial, um, including when you make mistakes.
1: All right, thank you, Debbie. We mentioned earlier that your mission is to help create a world without discrimination. And we've talked about how even that mandate, the mandate itself is under assault by some people, which means that, um, you know, we're, society itself has a lot of hard work to figure out how do we keep moving forward? How do we keep making progress? So my last official question to you is what can Canadians, average Canadians, entrepreneurs, listeners to the podcast, what can we all do better? How can we help each other to ensure that Canada is an accepting, safe and welcoming place?
0: It's a very, very beautiful question. And I think when we 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 all have ideas of what being Canadian's is what it's about and it looks different for everybody, you know, what being Canadian for me looks like it very much so involves elements of uh, my parents and the the culture that they taught me as I grew up. That for me feels as equally as Canadian as, you know. Maple syrup and hockey, etc. That might look, you know, different for someone who grew up in a rural area versus urban. I think of some of the unifying factors of what it means to be Canadian and the things that we hold near and dear to our heart are a society that is made up of so many different people. We talk about multiculturalism, although some people have opinions around um, that mosaic and you know how realistic it is. But you know, there is. The, the beauty underlying in that message of multiculturalism that Canada is made up of so many different provinces, territories, communities, language, et cetera, it speaks to the strength of a community where diversity, diverse folks come together to work and build the, the society that we live in. When we think about that fundamental value that we hold that is central to Canadian identity or the Canadian imagination, that should be a driving factor to, to motivate you to support and advocate for some of the most marginalized people in this country who are under attack and who are being told that they don't belong, um, which is resulting in them being fearful for even leaving their homes, fearful for being their true authentic selves. Uh, if we are proud to be in a society where we are free to express ourselves, Um, in so many different ways, we should be able to advocate for that free expression to be accessible to everyone. And I think that is, I think the message that I would want folks to to recognize and to recognize that um, there are some people who are pushed further in the margins, which pushes them away from that free expression piece. And so how do we bring them along? And it's gonna require maybe supporting LGBTQ organizations in your local community. Do you know of one? If you don't, is there an opportunity for you to learn to see, hey, is there an LGBTQ organization who might benefit from my donation or even benefit from me following them simply on social media or amplifying their work? Um, That's an easy tool or an easy thing to do. Is there an opportunity for me to, you know, vote with those communities in mind? There are so many different ways for you to be able to do that um, so that those folks aren't alone and don't feel like they can't be part of our societies. Our societies are so much stronger with people being able to to feel and actually be a part of our communities, right? And so I think that's that's the important thing. And I hope the message that people get across from me being here with you today.
1: Well, thank you so much. And just uh, picking up on, on how you left it there, um, I totally agree that as we work towards a more diverse and uh, and equitable future we're unlocking a lot of talent and entrepreneurs who are the main body of listeners to the podcast uh they don't have to be told they're looking for talent all the time and 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 they're they're pulling their hair out trying to figure out where to find people so um business benefits from your mission do you get much support from the business community and is there a way that entrepreneurs specifically as people who have a tiny little bit of money left at the end of the year, any any specific way that they could help your organization and its mission?
0: Absolutely. You'll be, I, I mean, it's probably not surprising to the listeners, but business owners are some of the most awesome and giving donors to our work. The amount of entrepreneurs and, oh, yeah, and small that. business owners who will donate a portion of their proceeds to an organization like ours and you know they're they're not big corporations but they're doing it because for many entrepreneurs and i'm going to include myself in this as someone who has a little side business selling earrings you do this because not only are you passionate about whatever you're you're creating or whatever you're um you know marketing or selling the the, the asset that you're, you also bring your values into it and for the people who um make the decision to be entrepreneurs because the traditional business like community, that's not for them. They want to be able to have their values front and center in the and what they're delivering in terms of a service. Those folks end up being some of the longest standing and most giving donors to an organization like CCGSD. And I, I think that partnership and that story is a really important one to tell, um, especially considering that many LGBTQ people who find themselves leaving traditional job markets because of the discrimination they face, they end up choosing entrepreneurship as a way to to thrive and survive with those values in mind. And they end up giving a lot. So there's definitely a story there um, and something incredible in terms of how nonprofit organizations who do this work and entrepreneurs are in collaboration uh, in trying to build the communities that we wanna see that are free of discrimination.
1: I couldn't have said that better myself. Yeah, entrepreneurs have always been people who see things a little bit differently and uh, generally a little bit more clearly. And uh, I'm glad to hear that they've been stepping up and hopefully they will continue uh, to do that uh, to support the great work you're doing. Finally, Debbie, as a leader, as a change maker, do you have one more tip, one more piece of advice to offer our audience in terms of uh, how they can create change, manage change successfully?
0: Absolutely. You can make change. You don't have to do it alone. I think that's the, the most important message. And I think just even just talking about, you know, that overlap between LGBTQ organizations and entrepreneurs, that is an example of how change can happen. When you find your unlikely partner or your unlikely, um, <laughs> you know, a colleague in this work, Try to think about that. Try to think about how could is there an opportunity for you to reach out to a different sector, an unlikely, you know, an unlikely partner, to be able to do this change work, and you'd be really, really surprised what could be created as as a result of it. I've seen some incredible work being done again between entrepreneurs and activists and advocates, and I would strongly suggest that folks do the same. Think about it. Is there an org? that your organization can continue to amplify every Pride month. Maybe that org is the CCGSD. Maybe it's the one that's in your local community. Think about that and think about the story and the message that um, folks can resonate between what you are doing with the work that you do and that advocate group and what can possibly be done together.
1: Right. Uh, regular listeners of this podcast know that uh, I occasionally go on and on about how entrepreneurship is a way for people to build a lifestyle, a life of their own, and successful entrepreneurs then have the potential to be advocates for different points of view, different cultures, different styles of of, of living and behaving. And uh, it's a great example. So uh, let's salute the entrepreneurs who are changemakers and uh, and urge them to keep going (laughs) because we're not done yet.
0: Absolutely. Okay,
1: we have been talking with Debbie Obusu-Achia, the Executive Director at the Canadian Centre for Gender and Sexual Diversity in Ottawa. Debbie, thanks so much for sharing uh, your mandate with us, and uh, we'll we'll support you in your mission and create a more just Canada, and we'll check back with you and see how things are going.
0: Awesome. Thank you so much for for having
1: me. It's our pleasure.